Well, good morning. It's nice to see all of you out today for worship. I am Pastor Seth, and I want to take just this opportunity to personally congratulate all of our graduates on your accomplishments. We had 11 high school graduates this time that we recognized, along with seven uh, college and uh, graduate students, and we're so proud of you, and we thank God for all that has happened in your life to this point, and we counted a significant responsibility and opportunity to be able to continue to pray for you and encourage you in the days ahead, wherever the Lord might take you and whatever path he might take you on. I said to the early service that I'm encouraged by several of our graduates who have continued on and have already gone into different chapters of their adult lives and professionally found the path that they want to be on. And yet in the midst of all of that, they've continued to follow the Lord and their faith has been important to them. It's been real in their lives and that's exciting to see. And I would pray the same for our high school graduates. This is a turning point for those of you that are graduating from high school. Uh, you have decisions now to make on your own, and your faith has to be your own. And the most significant decision that you can make is to continue to follow the Lord and build your life on the things that you've been taught, the things that you have professed to believe on your own. And the Lord will bless you, and he will watch over your life, and he will mark out your path if you will trust him and follow him in all that you do. And that would be our hope and our prayer for you. Today we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in the New Testament. We're going to consider together verses 9 through 12 in a message entitled Everyday Christians. Now, it's interesting how significant habits are in our lives. A habit is something that is something we do often or regularly, often without even thinking about it. And it's also interesting how habits develop in our lives. Oftentimes there's a cue that leads to a certain pattern of behavior, and then there's a routine uh, that that behavior takes place in, and then there's a reward from success in that pattern of behavior. And of course, I'm talking about positive habits, because some of us might have habits that are bad habits that we would like to break or stop doing in our lives. But certainly good habits can be healthy and helpful for us in our lives. A Duke University study showed that about 40% of the actions that you perform every day are not necessarily conscious decisions that you make, but they're habits that have been formed, and habits are important in unlocking your full potential. Now, it would be a temptation for us at this point as we think about spiritual habits to think that if we put these things into practice that somehow we're pleasing God in the sense that we're trying to measure up to God so that we can gain favor with him and earn salvation or eternal life in some way. And that's not how it works at all. Salvation comes to us by grace through faith. And when we are transformed, then we live lives that are transformed. We live lives that reflect and reveal who we are in Christ. As we think about what it means to be everyday Christians, we recognize that the everyday Christian life is important. If we want to glorify God over the long haul, we're recognizing here that we're not engaged in a spiritual sprint. We are engaged in a spiritual marathon. And every single day counts. Every single habit that we implement, every practice that we implement as everyday Christians weighs in on our effectiveness and also our fruitfulness and our usefulness to God as we serve him. And sometimes we get lost in the moment and we think, well, if there's not some 
uh, something spiritually dynamic or there's not some big thing that has happened in our lives, then somehow it's not been significant or it doesn't matter. And we're looking for those big moments and those dynamic experiences that somehow would define our faith. But in many ways, what defines our faith is how we live every single day, practically living out the truth of Scripture, empowered by God for His glory. Michael Horton wrote in The Ordinary Christian Life, he said, radical, epic, revolutionary, impactful, life-changing, ultimate, extreme, explosive breakthrough. Ordinary has to be one of the loneliest words in the human vocabulary. Who wants to be that ordinary person who lives in an ordinary town, is a member of an ordinary church, and has ordinary friends, and works an ordinary job? Our life, after all, has to count. We have to leave our mark and have a legacy and make a difference. We need to be radical disciples, taking our faith to a whole new level. And all of this should be something that can be managed, measured, and maintained. Horton writes, after all, we have to live up to our Facebook profiles. Ordinary does not necessarily mean mediocre, though. Athletes, architects, humanitarians, and artists can vouch for the importance of everyday faithfulness to mundane tasks that leads to excellence. But even if we are not headliners in our various callings, it is enough to know that we are called there by God to maintain a faithful presence in the world. And we look up in faith toward God and out toward our neighbors in love and good works. You don't have to transform the world to be a faithful mom or dad, sibling, ch church member, or neighbor. And then Horton closes with this. And who knows, maybe if we discover the opportunities of the ordinary a fondness for the familiar, and a wonder for the mundane, we might just end up being radical after all. Everyday Christians live ordinary lives, but we serve a God who specializes in the extraordinary. He uses ordinary lives for his extraordinary purposes. And I think, in a sense, the Apostle Paul, in this passage of Scripture before us today, in 1 Thessalonians 4, is offering a defense of, if not an encouragement toward, everyday Christian living. And in doing so, Paul gives us behavior to avoid in chapter 3, in impurity and immorality. And then he turns to the positive, and he says, these are some things that you can implement in your life that, in fact, you should be implementing if you want to be faithful to Christ we begin reading in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 9. This is what the Word of God says. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. To seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. We're going to consider four instructions here for everyday Christians that we find in these verses. The first instruction for everyday Christians is to love one another. That's what he's referring to in verses 9 and 10. There are two kinds of love that are referenced here. One kind of love that is referenced is the love of God. This is agape love. It's the word that is used for love in the second half of verse 9. 
Agape love is the highest, most pure, most perfect form of love that there could possibly be. And the reason being is it flows from the character of God. God is holy. God is love. God is pure. So every expression of the love of God is always going to be holy and pure. It's a love that is unconditional in a sense because it is given to us freely through God's grace when we come to faith in Christ. J.I. Packer said that the Greek word agape for love seems to have been a virtually Christian invention. A new word for a new thing, apart from about 20 occurrences in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it is almost non-existent before the New Testament. Agape draws its meaning directly from the revelation of God in Christ. It is not a form of natural affection, however intense, but a supernatural fruit of the Spirit. It is a matter of the will rather than feeling, and Christians are to love even those they dislike. And Packer says it is the basic element of Christ-likeness. It's the most significant reflection of whether or not we are in Christ. Now there's an interesting progression that is found in 1 John chapter 4 as it relates to this entire idea of agape love. And I want you to track with me in this because I think it will bring the pieces together of what Paul is referring to here in 1 Thessalonians 4. The first part of that chain of connection in 1 John chapter 4 is that God is love. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 says very plainly, God is love. Not only is God love, but also God's love has been shown to us. So the love of God that is inherent to his character, it is a part of his nature. It is the very definition of who God is as the holy God. He is also love. He has demonstrated his love toward us. He's shown his love toward us. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9 and 10 says, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In that sense, the gospel puts on display the love of God. God is love. God is holy. We are not. The bad news is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are consequences for our sin. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So God has preeminently, most clearly, shown us his love through what he has done for us in his Son. That Jesus, the God-man, would enter into this world in the mess and the chaos as we know it. And he would experience life just as we have experienced life and be tempted at every point as we are tempted, except he was without sin. That he would give his life, as 1 John chapter 4 says, as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, there was an exchange that was made at the cross. That the one who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That the death of Jesus would satisfy the holiness of God and the wrath of God upon sin. And that Jesus would be the way that we would know what love is because he has given his life for us that we might know the love of God. So the progression is, remember, God is love. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, 
God has shown his love to us. 1 John chapter 4, and verse 9 and 10. But then here's the last part of this. The second kind of love that is referenced in the primary passage we're considering today is philadelphias or brotherly love. And that's what Paul references. It's the word that is used in the first half of verse 9. And the last part of this progression is that not only is God love, or not only has God shown us his love, but then he teaches us to love. 1 John 4 and verse 11 says, Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. Paul communicated to the Thessalonian church and he says, interestingly, you didn't need me to teach you about this. Why? God himself has taught you about this. Now, how could that be? God uses human instruments. He uses his word. He teaches us in that regard. But what Paul is doing is he's going a layer deeper. He's saying, this is, this is not just my words teaching you. I'm, I'm not just proclaiming the word to you, but God himself has taught you. And the key to understanding what he's referring to is he's talking about the Holy Spirit. That's what the passage in 1 John 4 refers to in verse 13, that God has given us his spirit. Romans 5 and verse 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. When we come to faith in Christ and we receive him and come to follow him as our Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. That's the very essence of what it means to be a Christian, that it's, it's God in us, God alive in us. And it's the Spirit of God that brings to us the love of God, and then he produces in us the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love. So he says, I, I don't even need to teach you this because God has already taught you this. Since God is love... A relationship with him will produce love. And the early church was marked out by their love. So much so that Tertullian said, behold, how these Christians love one another. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, by the love you show one toward another. So when someone looks at your life individually, and then they look at us collectively as the body of Christ who gathers at Cross Lanes Baptist Church, would one of the preeminent things that they say about us is that we're a people of love? Now remember, love is always consistent with the character of God. We cannot separate the love of God from the character of God. So a misuse of love in the world is to say that if we love, anything goes, and that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that love drives us to be more like God and God is holy in every way and since God is love that relationship with him will produce love and it will result in not only love for God but also in a love for other people now apparently the Thessalonians were already doing that and Paul says just keep on doing it you're doing good you need to be commended because you're already loving so you continue to do so even more Hebrews 10 and verse 24 says and let us consider how to stir up 
one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another in all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I think the practical application of this is that we're, if we're going to express the love of God toward one another, then we have to cultivate our love for God. That comes through the disciplines of prayer and the word and worship. It comes through a seeking after God because God has first sought after us. And then as we express that to other people, it, it's real. It's daily life. We're present. You have to be present with your family to show that kind of love. You've got to be present with God's family to demonstrate that type of love and learn to listen and care and help as the Lord gives you opportunity to do so. The second instruction for everyday Christians is to lead a quiet life. Verse 11, seek to lead a quiet life. Quiet in this verse means quiet in terms of restfulness. There is an undisturbed nature or a settledness, if you will, about your life when you're living a quiet life and your faith is in God. So the idea is that we would be at peace with God. You'll never live a quiet life if you don't have peace with God because when we're going in the opposite direction of the way God wants us to go in, we're going to run into difficulty no person can oppose God and have peace, but peace that is with God is also the peace of God that is with yourself because you know you're right with God and you know you're trying to live out a life that honors him. Then you can have peace with yourself. You can say, I know God, you're going to use me because I'm, I'm honoring you. And then we're to seek to be at peace with other people. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men is what the Bible says. So this is an interesting turn here because the word seek means to make it your ambition to have this kind of life. And this is sort of a paradox because the remark could mean something along the lines of uh, be ambitious to be unambitious. Or as one commentator said, this indicates the paradox is to seek strenuously to be still. Or another commentator said it means to strive hard to live quietly. And Paul knew well what a noisy life was like. After all, he had started the church at Thessalonica and there was a lot of attention drawn because of the gospel coming into conflict with what the people believed and there was a riot and there was a well-known and possibly wealthy man named Jason who was drawn out and taken into custody and once he was released, the Christians had to sneak Paul and Silas out of the city by night. So Paul knew well what a noisy world looks like and I'm afraid we know that all too well in our lives. There's so much clutter, so much chatter, so many competing voices that are coming into our space. And if we're not careful, we can be distracted by all that stuff. We can be drawn away. We can lose that foundational sense of peace that God has for us. It's interesting that prayer is connected to this idea as well in First Timothy 2. In verse 1 and 2, where Paul writes, First of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and, watch this, quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So why are we praying? So that we might lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. 
so that we can do what God has called us to do. And friends, leading a quiet life in a noisy world is incredibly challenging. We're living in a frantic age, and so many of us are living with so little margin in our lives that we have no room for quietness. We, we have no room for this peace that the Bible is describing here. And several years ago, a medical doctor by the name of Richard Swenson uh, wrote a book entitled Margin, Restoring Emotional, Physical, Financial, and Time Reserves to Overloaded, Overloaded Lives. It's one of my favorite books from the last few years. I think it's so telling about where we are and where we need to be. And he defined margin as the space between our load and our limits. Now, just think for a moment about the load that you have presently in your life. That's comprised of all that you have to do, family responsibilities, professional responsibilities, uh, things that you've taken on in your life. That's the load that is pressing in on you. And Swenson explains that our load is made up of factors such as work and commitments, expectations, debt, and conflicts. And our power is made up of components like energy, time, strength, finances, and social support. But all these things have limits. So here's how the equation works. When our load exceeds our limits, margin disappears, and we experience overload. And when we experience overload, there are negative consequences for us spiritually, emotionally, physically, relationally, and we don't have the room for joy and health and generosity and relationships. And we end up suffering emotionally and physically and financially and in every area of life. And yet here in the scripture, we are called. This is part of the Christian life to lead a quiet life. There is peace to be found in God. There, there is a settledness that comes. And leading a quiet life is not only difficult because we have no margin, but it's also difficult because we live in an age of entertainment and excitement, and we are constantly looking for that external stimulation. And if we don't get it, somehow we think that life is not real. To the point that some people pursue these things almost like a religion in and of itself. And this instant gratification culture seduces us to think that we're living for one thing. And that one thing that we're living for is the thrill of the moment. When in fact, that's not what God's calling us to. He's calling us to live in peace and to live quiet lives. How much margin is in your life in the areas that matter? What's the distance between your load and your limits, fight for that distance so that you can experience the peace that surpasses all understanding, which will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. The third instruction for everyday Christians is to mind your own business. Verse 11, this might be my favorite instruction of the four. Mind your own business. Each of us should concentrate on our own lives and not stick our nose in other people's lives, particularly when we're not invited to do so. Now, I get it. As soon as I say that, many of us are involved with other people's lives directly in serving and teaching and helping. And we got to find that balance somewhere in there as servants of other people who are trying to make lives better and to improve the world, and to make a difference, and to make an impact. we got to find that line in there somewhere 
where we're doing what we should be doing, but yet we're not stepping over the line. We're minding our own business so that we can be most helpful to other people in their business. I often call this staying in your lane. It's one of my favorite statements, in fact, other than it is what it is, is you need to learn to stay in your lane. You ever been on the highway? I know you have. I was out just a couple days ago driving down the interstate, and I won't tell you how fast I was going, but I was driving down the interstate, and there was a semi. I don't know what he's doing. Maybe he's on his radio. Maybe he's on his phone. Maybe he's getting drowsy. I don't know what he's doing, but he starts drifting over in my lane. And when he started drifting over in my lane, that was a moment that was about to be chaos for me because there's a concrete wall on the one side and there's a semi-truck on the other side. He's not staying in his lane, so he's causing me problems. When a very real way... When we drift over into other people's business uninvited in an unhelpful way and we cross that line of serving them to meddling in their lives, then problems are going to follow. There's a connection in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 11 and 12 where Paul elaborates on this a little bit. He says, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life and doing no work at all, but you're acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. The word busybodies in the scripture essentially means doing none of their own business, yet overdoing the business of others. So it's the idea of being busy about everyone else's business but their own. And where does a busybody stem from? An undisciplined life. I mean, how can you mind everybody else's business when you're trying to mind your own? Didn't we just talk about how our load and our limits are so close together and how so many of us don't have margin? And yet sometimes we get caught up in this where we're not minding our own business and a busybody is undisciplined in their living, which leads to disorderly living, and it can be very problematic in the church. And interestingly, a busybody in the church sometimes operates under the veil of helpfulness, but it is not helpful if your help is uninvited or unwelcomed or unhelpful, sometimes a busybody cloaks their actions in prayer requests and it ends up being nothing more than idle chatter or ungodly gossip. First Peter 4 verse 15 says, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. You didn't see that one coming, did you? Did you hear the connection? First part of the verse, he's talking about murderers. And the last part of the verse, he's talking about troublesome meddlers. You think God cares whether or not we mind our own business? Yes, he cares whether or not we mind our own business. He instructs us in his word to mind our own business. And there's a fine line between concern and meddling. So let me help you and suggest some ways that maybe we can find that line and have wisdom in our lives. And how we can stay in our lane. We should first ask the question of a particular situation. Have I prayed and asked God what my response should be to this circumstance? Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't jump into somebody else's problem. Unless it's wise and helpful and needed. And ask the Lord whether or not you need to be involved in what your response should be. Ask the question... Is the situation really any of my business? Is it really any of my business? Now, here is another line that we have to be aware of in the Scripture. 
We're called to bear one another's burdens. At times, we're called upon to rebuke one another. We're to warn each other about sin and, and transgression and issues and warn people about dangers that are ahead. We would be uh, not fulfilling our responsibility if, if we didn't do those things. But it takes wisdom to be able to apply that and know if it's a true rebuke or it's a true warning or it's something that's really helpful or it's just involving yourself in somebody else's circumstance. Ask, is my motivation to help and to be a blessing or is it just to be needed? Your motivation is important. We want to do what God has called us to do. We want to be helpful. We don't want to just do it because we want to feel needed or we want to feel significant because we've helped in a situation. And then ask, has my involvement been requested by the people who are affected? This is huge because there are times where we feel like we should be helpful and we should engage in a particular issue and we try. We're using wisdom and uh, the peace of God to do it, and then people push back, and you can see in that moment, this is not the right time. This is not of God. They don't want me to get involved right now, so I'm going to return to my first position, which was to pray, and I'm going to ask the Lord if he wants me to do something further. And then you need to ask, am I qualified to offer assistance? There's nothing worse than meddling in somebody else's business and not being qualified to offer any real help in making the situation worse. I want to commend you as a church on how you apply this particular verse and this section of this verse and minding your own business. This is a church that is incredibly good, with some minor exceptions, that is incredibly good at minding their own business. In fact, there are some times where I would look and say, uh, they probably don't need to be doing that in this particular situation. There's some ways they could be helpful, but yet you're always cautious. And you know why you're cautious? Because you respect other people. You've been through hard times yourself. You've had embarrassing stuff happen in your family. You've had painful hurts that have come your way. You've had stuff happen that you didn't have any explanation for. And you're not going to go jump in the middle of somebody else's pain and hurt and embarrassment and make things worse. You're going to mind your own business until you find out there's a need for you not to mind your own business. And I commend you in that. And I encourage you to continue on in that path. And it makes for healthy relationships. And it makes for a church where people are very respectful toward one another. But yet a church that's also willing to do whatever needs to be done when the time comes to be a blessing to somebody else. The fourth instruction for everyday Christians is to work with your own hands, again in verse 11. Some of the Greeks thought that they were too good to do labor. They thought that because they had servants and in many circumstances slaves, they didn't have to do any work. And yet the commandment of God was and is to work. Let me preface this particular instruction by saying that we're living in a time where the very basic idea of a work ethic is flagging. It is diminishing in many circles. And there are many people who constantly have their hand out, expecting someone else to do for them what they should be doing for themselves. 
Friends, I'm not talking about people that are physically incapacitated or emotionally or mentally incapacitated. We should be the most compassionate people of all and the most helpful people of all as Christians toward people who have limitations in life. So I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about able-bodied people who have the capacity to contribute to society, particularly who call themselves Christians, who should be applying these principles to their lives. And this verse seems to indicate that most of the church, if, uh, if not all of them, had come from a working class and Paul himself modeled what it meant to work. He was a tent maker. He wasn't afraid of work. And the Bible has a lot to say about work. And something that I think we also may have forgotten is that the beginning of work was good. In fact, it was God himself who worked for six days and he rested on the seventh day in the order of creation. And God created people to work. He planted a garden and he put Adam in it to cultivate it and to maintain it and to be productive in it. And man was intended to work and to care for and to tend God's creation. So God, when he started the whole thing, thought that it was good. And of course, when sin entered into the world, it brought a drastic change in the nature of work and sin brought toil and challenge and difficulty and struggle. But let's not lose sight of the fact that work is a gift from God. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 12 and 13 says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now, this may surprise you, but I think that there's going to be work in eternity. In fact, I think heaven, in a sense, is going to be the restored vision of what Eden was intended to be to begin with. And I think in that new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to be productive and we're going to work and we're going to show the glory of God with our hands and our lives and our minds and our hearts and except it's going to be without sin. It's going to be without the toil and the trouble and the weeds and all the stuff that causes us trouble in our present work. And we're going to see what work was intended to be to begin with. And work is a very serious matter. Uh, the issue is escalated in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, where Paul writes, But if anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So Paul says, listen, if you profess to be a follower of Christ and you're not working and you're not trying and you're able, you're worse than an unbeliever. This is serious. And we should take these matters seriously. Doug Sherman and William Hendricks wrote, Your Work Matters to God. And in their writing, what they did was they showed how we often compartmentalize between the secular and the spiritual. In other words, we say, this is our life over here. This is the secular. This is our work. This is what we do over here. And this is my spiritual sector over here. And we segment the two. And listen to what they wrote about it. Those who hold a secular view of work believe that life is divided into two disconnected parts. God is in one spiritual dimension and work is in the other real dimension and the two have nothing to do with each other. God stays in his corner of the universe while I go to work and live my life in these different realms never interact. The secular view of work leaves God out of the system. 
This is particularly unacceptable for Christians because God calls us to make him the center of our lives. He wants us to have a biblical worldview that weaves him into every aspect of our lives, including work. And he wants to be invited into our work. He wants to be Lord of our work. We should view work as a gift from God and as an opportunity to serve him. So let me put it to you this way. Whatever sector of life you're in, where there's something that's visible and out front and gets accolades and attention and is valued, where if you're in something that's behind the scenes, nobody notices, nobody seems to care, I want you to know in both of those, God is equally as concerned. And God wants the two to be one. He wants the secular and the spiritual to be one. And as people of faith, it really can't be any other way. Because if we separate them, what we're doing is we're minimizing the faith and we're maximizing or, or, or overstating the, the secular part of it. And God says, no, that's not how it's to be. And I'm saying to you today, especially those of you who are graduates and we're celebrating this accomplishment that you're in and you're going on to the next step of life, don't think that when you engage in whatever vocation that God has called you to, if it is honorable and trustworthy, that somehow it's of different value than it is something that is explicitly spiritual because all of life is explicitly spiritual. Everything that we do is for the glory of God. In whatever area you're involved with in society and in culture and this world and your family and however God's given you those opportunities, you should give it all for his glory. And work reveals a lot about us. It shows our underlying character. It reveals our motivation. It expresses our abilities. And Paul says in verse 12 here in 1 Thessalonians 4 is particularly important so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. So let me say it to you this way. Work hard, work smart, and work with purpose. And I close with this passage in Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that you'll receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. No man can have two masters. We can't serve ourselves, and at the same time say that we're serving God. We serve God, and we're blessed most of all because we're honoring the one who created us, who redeems us, and who sustains us in all of life. And every day we ought to wake up thinking, how can I live today for the glory of God? How can I be an everyday Christian that shows who I am in Christ? Let's bow our heads together just for a moment as we come toward the close of the service. Here in just a moment, uh, Pastor Eric's going to come and sing a closing song with us. And uh, we'll pray and be dismissed. But I want you to think just for a moment about the things that I have shared with you and what God might be saying to you in this moment. To be able to apply these instructions in a way that is fruitful and spiritual, you have to have a relationship with God, and that comes through faith in Christ.
The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Eternal life is a gift, but a gift has to be received. And it has to be received by faith. That's the starting point for all of us. Do you have that gift? And then Christian, follower of Jesus, does your life reflect these characteristics? Are you living out these instructions day to day in the everyday Christian life in a way that honors and glorifies God? Are you going to wake up in the morning and say, God, thank you for this opportunity you've placed in front of me today to make a difference. I just want to be faithful. I want to be a faithful presence of Jesus in whatever sphere of this world, Lord, that you've placed me in. Help me to do that. God, I'm so grateful that faith is not something that's just ethereal or off in the distance somewhere or in the sweet by and by. It's in the here and now. And that you have shown yourself to us through your son that we might know you and understand what spiritual life is all about. Help us to embrace Jesus with our lives and to live in a way that we'd have a good reputation toward outsiders and in a way that builds up the family of God. Father, I'm grateful for this church. These characteristics and these instructions are so evident among us. And I I would hope, Lord, that when you look out among us that uh, the idea would be what Paul had toward the church at Thessalonica, that they just need to continue on and to do so even more. I pray that's what we'd do, that we would continue on and do so even more as we live out our faith. So, Lord, as we close out this service, if there are steps of faith or decisions that need to be made, I pray that people would come, and even after, as we have opportunity to pray and encourage and help people in their walk with you. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.